Before They Were Beatles. Episode 7, Changes. This is a story of how one of thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence and at times just sheer luck. It is a story of beginnings, the story of John, Paul, George and Ringo before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Part 1 August 1957. On August 7th, 1957, John Lennon stepped onto the stage at the Cavern for his first documented appearance at the club. According to the quarryman banjo player Rod Davis, the group had already played the club a few times earlier on an unbilled basis. However, this occasion was the first time that they'd been mentioned in the Cavern's advertising published in the Liverpool Echo newspaper. Considering the later relationship between the Beatles and the famous venue in Matthew Street, this debut was less than auspicious. The gig had been arranged by the quarryman's manager Nigel Wally through his golf club connections and the cavern owner Alan Sittner had reluctantly squeezed a schoolboy group onto the bill for the Wednesday skiffle night session. Sittner's rules of engagement were simple. If it was skiffle night, you played skiffle and nothing else because that's what the audience had come to hear. Of course, for John Lennon, rules were made to be broken or at least bent a little. The quarrymen, without their newest member Paul McCartney, who was away at a Boy Scout camp, started their set with their standard skiffle routine, but John was itching to play rock and roll. Something, according to Davis, that he'd tried on previous occasions and had been prevented by arguments from the banjo player himself. However, on this occasion, the quarry men were without Rod Davis as he was on a family vacation in France. Unchallenged by anybody else in the band, John proudly introduced, quote, two new skiffle numbers to their set, Blue Suede Shoes and Hound Dog. Alan Sittner was less than amused and a hastily written note was passed onto the stage from the club owner telling Mr. Lennon and his group to, quote, cut out the bloody rock. Sittner's view of their overall performance was equally dismissive. They went down all right, but it was hardly a discerning audience. I thought they were pretty useless, just a bunch of kids going through their apprenticeship. Shortly after the Quarrymen's Cavern gig, their erstwhile member, Paul McCartney, made his, his own debut on the public stage. On a family vacation to Butlin's holiday camp in Filey, Yorkshire, Paul and his younger brother Mike entered a national talent contest organised and sponsored by the People newspaper. The boys were encouraged to enter by their cousin Elizabeth and her husband Mike, who both worked at the camp. Entering as the McCartney brothers, the duo sang a couple of numbers but failed to qualify for the next round. There is some disagreement as to what exactly was performed. According to some accounts, they first sang the Everly brothers' Bye Bye Love as a duet. Followed by Paul's solo rendition of Little Richard's Long Tall Sally. 
Unfortunately, Mike's nerves got the better of him, and at the conclusion of Paul's song, he rushed off stage to throw up in the nearest fire bucket. As he was just recovering from a broken arm, and by Paul's own account, looked very pale, it may have been all too much for him. But it would not have mattered even if their performance had been perfect. There was no way they could progress to the next round, as the content rules stated that all contestants had to be over 16 years of age. Back in Liverpool, various members of the Quarrymen were heading for life-changing decisions as the new school year started. Rod Davis decided to stay on at Quarry Bank and enter the sixth form in order to study his A-levels, a necessary requirement for university entrance. As a consequence, he said that he drifted out of the Quarrymen, then boarded a guitar and became part of a jazz trio at Quarry Bank, piano, guitar and drums. Eric Griffiths left school and started as an apprentice engineer with the local aircraft engine manufacturer's Napier. As Eric started his apprenticeship, so drummer Colin Hanson neared completion of his. John's friend Pete Shotton entered the police training school. The old gang was starting to break up. Although they all still lived close to one another, the daily contact at Quarry Bank School was no more. Part 2, September 1957. John was not isolated from these changes, for he too started a new phase in his life at Liverpool Art College. As the Liverpool Art College shared the same physical building with the Liverpool Institute, the two being connected by a corridor that provided easy access between them, John had exchanged daily contact with his Quarry Bank crowd for daily contact with Liverpool Institute attendee and new group member Paul McCartney and his tag-along chum, George Harrison. Attendance at the Art College also had one other major impact on John Lennon, for here he met the one person who arguably had the greatest impact on his life, Stuart Sutcliffe. Although only four months older than John, Stuart was a couple of years ahead of him at the art college due to his natural talent for painting. Stuart's family was from an entirely different background to John's and it seems strange on the surface that they should be such good friends. Born in Scotland on 23rd of June 1940, Stuart moved to the Liverpool area with his family in 1943 when his father was relocated as an essential war worker at a shipyard in nearby Birkenhead. After the war, his father returned to the Merchant Navy, much like John's father, and spent most of the subsequent years away from the family. As a consequence, Stuart and his younger sisters were raised almost single-handedly by his mother Millie, a schoolteacher and political activist. The Sutcliffe house was always full of books, paintings and music. Both parents had studied the piano and still played, but painting was Stuart's real passion, even from an early age. It was a teacher at Prescott Grammar School, and Mr Walters, who first recognised his talent and gave him encouragement so much so that he had earned enough credit to be able to enrol in the Liverpool Art College two years earlier than normal. Coincidentally, the year was 1956, and along with many others, Stuart had also discovered rock and roll in general and Elvis in particular. And while painting continued to be Stuart's passion, Elvis was now his own personal god. As the Sutcliffe's technically lived outside the city boundaries of Liverpool in a suburb of Heighton, he was not given several of the living expense grants available to other students. In order to cut down the costs of travelling to and from the college each day, Stuart rented a succession of small apartments which over the coming years would resound to the sound of guitars. Despite their apparent differences, John and Stuart formed an almost immediate bond. John admired Stuart's sense of style, his knowledge of art and the fact he was more worldly. While in John, Stuart seemed to sense someone who reflected his own inner rebellious wishes. Being different was a quality much admired by Stuart and John Lennon was certainly different. Their dress styles seemed to complement their characters too. John was dressed for attention in, in tight drainpipe jeans with narrow legs and a long flocked black coat that he wore with a swagger and self-assurance that camouflaged his insecurities. While Stuart dressed in an individual style, he did so for himself. John was overtly anarchic, while Stuart displayed his anarchy through his paintings, pushing the boundaries of his craft in a way that now can be seen to be way ahead of its time. 
It also helped that Stuart was on the Student Union Committee by this time and would have been seen by John as someone who could be in a position to give his group some work at the college dances. They were introduced by a mutual friend, Bill Harry, who had later found the Merseybeat newspaper. It wasn't long before the three new friends would escape the confines of the college to while away hours at the nearby Crack pub, where they would, as all students did, complain about the lectures. But they would also talk about Buddy Holly, Elvis and rock and roll, while Stuart introduced them to painters and poets. Part 3, October 1957 Although he had yet to play a single note in public with the Quarrymen, all had already become a significant influence on the remaining members, for, for by now rehearsals had switched to the McCartney's front room in Fortlin Road. In mid-October, John, Len Gary, Eric Griffiths, Nigel Wally and Paul met to rehearse and discuss an upcoming gig scheduled for the 18th. Paul suggested that the Quarrymen should dress it up a bit by wearing long white jackets and present a smarter image on stage. Paul had a supporter in Nigel Wally, who as their nominal manager had tried to smarten them up as much as possible for a golf club gig earlier in the year. They reached a compromise that meant the band would have a more together look. Paul and John would wear the jackets while the rest of the group would wear white shirts and black string ties. Nearly three months after agreeing to join the group, Paul McCartney made his debut as a member of the Quarrymen on 18th of October at the new club Moore Hall, a conservative club in Norris Green. The Quarrymen were booked by local promoter Charlie McBain, who also owned and ran the Walton Hall in Garston, which was actually closer to where most of the group lived. Entrance fee was three shillings. The Quarrymen were the second band on that night, scheduled to be on stage at 9pm. The band assembled backstage at around 7.50 after a two-bus journey to the club. They spent the time before going on stage, tuning their instruments, messing about and consuming a fair amount of alcohol and cigarettes. At the appointed hour, they climbed onto the low stage close to a crowd of around 100 people all mainly in their late teens and early 20s. On stage, Len Gary, bass, was at the back. Paul, with his guitar, was to the right. John, with the guitar to the left. Eric Griffiths was placed far left, and Colin Hampton on drums on the far right. Even though this was his first gig with the group, Paul had naturally taken the front and centre position alongside John. As a result of the earlier compromise, they all wore matching outfits with long-sleeved cowboy shirts, black string ties and black trousers, with John and Paul also donning the much-discussed white jackets. The group had prepared a playlist of around 20 songs leading off with Long Tall Sally sung by Paul. It got such a good reaction that they hastily rearranged the playlist to include more Little Richard songs for Paul to sing. John followed Paul with a rendition of All Shuck Up, which he introduced by announcing to the audience that, for the next number, I'll just have to put on my Elvis wig. Even at this early stage, John's repartee with the audience was highly unusual, as very few of the bands that played on the skiffle circuit ever bothered to speak to the audience, they just came on and played. Paul then started his much-rehearsed party piece solo, Les Paul's Guitar Boogie. Partway through, he seemed to miss a few chords and it threw him. John, realising that Paul was in trouble, brought the number to an end by quipping, yeah, he's our new boy, he'll be alright given time. John's use of humour covered up what could have been an embarrassing incident for Paul, 
but the group then settled in to play the rest of their set and received quite rousing applause. Some sources suggest that Paul's clumsiness was a result of the fact that he'd only just restringed his guitar to play it left-handed. But this seems unlikely as most of the members of the Quarrymen remember him playing it, quote, upside down from the earliest rehearsals. This gig is also significant and that it possibly marks the beginning of the Lennon-McCartney songwriting team. It's generally agreed that it was after this gig that Paul first played John the song he'd written called I Lost My Little Girl. John was impressed enough to start working on his own songs. Same with them. The Quarrymen had also noticed that numerous other skiffle groups and burgeoning rock acts in Liverpool were fishing in the same well for inspiration when it came to songs. It wasn't too long before it was becoming difficult to tell the groups apart by their playlists. This was a problem that Paul and John were determined to tackle. Our first thought was to search out for obscure b-sides. Then the light bulb went off. If we wrote our own songs then nobody else could do them first. So we started writing to put one over on all the other bands. Part 4 November 1957. Although the exact date of the start of the Lennon-McCartney collaboration is difficult to pin down, there is no denying that by early November 1957 the two had started to work together on a regular basis. Paul recalls, We used to sag off school together and go back to my house because there was nobody home in the afternoons. We'd sit around smoking and talking and then we'd play a bit on my dad's piano or on our guitars. We would try different songs that either of us knew. John would teach me the ones he knew and I'd teach him the ones I knew. We began to write a lot of songs then, like Love Me Do and Too Much About Sorrows. There was a lot from then, about a hundred, that we never actually got around to recording. Perhaps the most remarkable thing about this period is not just the prolific number of songs, but the informal contract that the two teenagers arranged between themselves. Not all the songs were joint efforts, but they decided no matter who the originator, every song would share a joint credit. The nascent songwriting partnership of John and Paul recorded their composition in a school exercise book. Each new song would be started with the legend, another Lennon-McCartney original scrawled across the top of the page. Unfortunately, these priceless notebooks were lost in the 1960s when Paul's then long-term girlfriend, Jane Asher, accidentally threw them out while spring cleaning the house. It was very rare for them to compose a piece together from the very start. The songwriting sessions were generally to polish off some songs they'd done on their own. Starting a song may have meant having an idea for a melody or arriving with an almost complete song which just needed the essential middle eight hook. It may also have meant coming up with a great title and a first line and needing help with the direction. Or having heard a great new rock and roll song and wanted to make a version that was all their own. From early on, each song bore the distinctive signature of being either a John Lennon or a Paul McCartney song. They were markedly different in their approaches to songwriting. Charlie McBain, who'd booked the Quarrymen for the October 18th gig, invited them back to play at his other venue, the aforementioned Walton Hall in nearby Garston. Payment was to be £2.10 shillings or £10 shillings for each member of the band. McBain advertised the group on the gig posters as Rock and Roll Skiffle Group, the first public acknowledgement that the group's repertoire was changing. Walton Hall was no more locally for its fist fights than its live music, and the Quarrymen's support act for that November 7th gig was a jukebox placed on the stage. Given the club's reputation, the boys didn't bother to dress up. Even this early on, they went their own way, not always acting as promoters and managers expected. Following the jukebox on stage, the Quarrymen launched into a set with Paul taking the lead on 20 Flight Rock. Much to the boys' disgust, the surly crowd continued to chat and ignored them. However, when John moved to centre stage, the chatting stopped as he launched into a powerful, raspy, nasal rendition of That'll Be The Day. Len Gary noted his stage presence seemed to carry us through. With the crowd won over, the Quarrymen completed their set, and this time Paul's rendition of Guitar Boogie was faultless. Mm-hmm. 
group's local reputation was starting to build as nine days later the boys found themselves playing a gig at the social club attached to the local abattoir in nearby Stanley. 23rd of November saw a return to the site of Paul's debut, the Clubmore Hall, and a photograph taken that night by a local fan, Les Kearney, shows the lineup as John on vocals and guitar, Paul, vocals and guitar, Eric Griffiths on guitar, Colin Hanton on drums, and Len Gary on the T-chess bass. Sometime during this month, the Quarrymen also performed at the regular Friday night dances at the Hay Dance Club across the Mersey in Morton on the Wirral Peninsula. Unfortunately, no documentary evidence of the exact dates of these first gigs outside the Liverpool city boundaries seem to exist. Part 5, December 1957. In early December 1957, a disenchanted drama student returned to Liverpool from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London to rejoin the family furniture business I. Epstein's and Sons in Walton Road. Born on 19th of September 1934 into wealth and privilege, Brian Epstein's childhood was very different from that of the four boys he would later groom for international stardom. The Epstein business was very successful and the family were affluent enough that Brian was raised by a nanny. He grew up under the watchful eye of his de- devoted mother, Queenie, for whom he could do no wrong. He was educated at a series of high fee-paying schools and did badly at, the, at all of them. In 1950, he dropped out of the education system at 16 and joined the family business. Two years later, he was called up for his national service and stationed at Albany Barracks in London. Brian hated the discipline and army life so much that he never bothered collecting his pay. His mannerisms and approach soon brought him into conflict with the army authorities and he was discharged as, quote, emotionally and mentally unfit after 10 months. Staying in London, Brian joined RADA in an attempt to launch a stage career. Here he learnt a lot about stagecraft, presentation and how to manage a show, but little about acting. Disillusioned, he returned to Liverpool. As the 23-year-old Brian Epstein rejoined the family firm, the company was going through a period of expansion. One of the company's stores had experimented with selling sheet music and instruments from an annex under the name North End Music Stores, or NEMS, or NEMS. Around the time of Brian's return to the fold, it had been decided to spin this venture off into a new store on Charlotte Street under the abbreviated NEMS name. Brian was installed as a director of the company and given the record department to run. He turned out to be an enthusiastic manager and the new venture turned a profit almost immediately. At the nearby art college, John and Stuart's friendship deepened, especially after Stuart and his flat rate, Rod Murray, relocated to new digs at 9 Percy Street. Stuart decorated the flat in bold white and black patterns, and it wasn't long before it became a hangout and a refuge for John. When Stuart spent some of his meagre budget on a cheap record player and a collection of records that included almost every Elvis single available, John became almost a permanent resident. Not to be outdone, Rod Murray bought a tape recorder, forging the art college tutor Arthur Ballard's signature as the loan guarantor. Some evenings after a session at the crack pub, Rod would record John and Stuart singing Elvis songs or copying routines from the anarchic radio show The Goons. Pick up that bottle you will find standing in the centre of your dining room table. Now, examine it carefully and read what it says in the very small print on the back of the label. Note that its contents are invaluable for pea soup, falling ears, irritation of the nerglers, exterminating socks and preserving eggs. And that doctor strongly recommend it as a cure for the lurgoi. The onset of the nerves, spots before the ankles, soft shoulders, pink toenails, and a cure margin on the leg. So, if you're feeling pimply and your knees are turning blue, don't be nervous, simply try ah, oh, oh, oh. practice every morning, and you'll find that you, almost without warning, will be a hookah-oo. Combat your infections with this latest 
Jones and King. Now the nights are colder, you'll find what to do. Right on the polder, just E-R-O-O. Unfortunately, these rare recordings, the first of John and Stuart together, have been lost. It's also entirely feasible that the quarrymen would join John for rehearsals at Percy Street. Rod Murray was a skiffle enthusiast and was in possession of his own washboard. It's therefore a reasonable assertion that he would have been interested in John's skiffle group and maybe even joined in with rehearsals. If there were indeed jam sessions at Stuart's flat, then he would have also possibly joined in the fun, making John's later invitation for him to join the quarrymen more understandable. Rehearsals aside, the quarrymen continued to play a number of local gigs that December, although only one can be accurately placed. On the 7th of December, they returned to the Garston's Walton Hall, and among the crowd that night was Paul's young friend George Harrison, getting his first glimpse of his friend's group. This is probably the first recorded meeting between George and the members of the Quarrymen. However, George's mother says that he first met the boys in a local chip shop, and Pete Shotton recalls them meeting George for the first time at the Harrison's house, having gone there with Paul. But it wasn't Paul that really impressed young George, it was the strutting lead singer, John Lennon. As well as playing at the local dance halls, Nigel Wally also entered the group in numerous local talent shows, with them appearing at the Locarno Ballroom in West Derby, the Pavilion Theatre on Lodge Lane and the Rialto Ballroom in the City Centre on Upper Parliament Street. Colin remembers that the contest at Locarno also included a session for male singers, and Paul suggested to John that the two of them should enter. John's reaction was, no way, we're not doing anything on our own, we're a group. Colin is of the impression that even at this stage, Paul would have instantly dropped everybody else just for him and John to do something together on their own. Although the exact dates aren't recorded, it appears that the group also played a number of dates over that winter at Hollyoak Hall on Smithdown Road, a few hundred yards away from the road junction known locally as Penny Lane. Despite all his previous efforts, Nigel Wally ended the year being gently leveraged out of his management role by Paul, who couldn't understand why Nigel was receiving equal shares of any wages when he didn't play on stage. By the end of 1957, the Quarrymen were a totally different ensemble than they had been at the start. They were well along the path from being a schoolboy skiffle band to becoming a nascent rock group. In our next episode, we enter 1958, a year of personal tragedy and the first few steps towards recording for the Quarrymen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Quarrymen, In Spite of All the Danger, John Lennon, Live in New York, Hound Dog, The Beatles, Let It Be Rehearsals, Bye Bye Love, The Beatles, 1964, Long Tall Sally, Les Paul, Guitar Boogie, and the goons from 1957 E-R-O-O. You can find full versions of the music heard in this episode in the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel, for which there'll be a link in the show notes. If you would like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback, and Kindle editions. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe, and enjoy peace and love.
Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrin Entertainment, a division of 4Js Group, LLC.